You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 through 11. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert, like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful to the, for the promises that you have made to us in your word, the promises that you have made and kept in the Lord Jesus. We pray now that you would even today give us faith or build our faith in these promises, the coming of our Lord Jesus, the King. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Good to see you all, everyone. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after the service. And Merry Christmas. Uh, As I say similarly, nearly every time around this time of year, I know that all of our experiences as children were different, but Christmas time was absolutely my favorite time of the year, every year as a kid. Uh, Every year, it's just like a grand story that's just swirling along that you just get sucked up into. Uh, Along for the ride, like any good story, there are characters, there's mom and dad and grandparents and cousins. There's Santa and Rudolph and the Grinch and Bob Cratchit, who is best played by Kermit the Frog. Uh, There is Kevin McAllister and the Wet Bandits, all of it. And oh yeah, maybe there might be Jesus as well. There was a setting as a a kid, Christmas Eve at my my grandparents' house, Nanny and Bear's house, uh, with a fire in the fireplace, presents around the tree. You take your picture at the mall with Santa, the mall 
like I was, I was at the mall with several of you a couple of weeks ago at the Coronado Mall, well, maybe like a month ago, and I hadn't been in the mall in like years. And I don't think there's anything that brought more like mid-90s nostalgia in my life than just being in that building. Uh, but anyway, that's, the, it, that's what Christmas was for me as a kid, shopping. Uh, all of these experiences, building and building, the history of past Christmases and experiences, the future suspense, the seemingly never-ending waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, the climax and resolution of Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day, all elements of a good story. But like every year here at Christ Church, we want to be more intentional in the building up of the expectation and the waiting to force a bit of hope, because hope is a future-oriented uh, experience, belief, encounter. You have to want something in the future more for the, past, or for the present. But biblical hope is not just a wish. Uh, it is a confident expectation. Christmas Eve, when you're a kid, is absolutely and certainly coming. It forces you to long for December 24th more than December 5th or something like that. Christmas can't come fast enough when you're a kid. And I know that my kids still have this sense of expectation of Christmas coming, but my guess is this sense of longing and expectation has waned for us as adults. And, and even talking to many of you this week, uh, Christmas can actually be a time that isn't all just gumdrops and candy canes, sleigh rides. There are bad memories and pain. There are bro broken and lost relationships. And Christmas just inevitably brings up all of those past experiences. And so I'm not going to just try and drum up a sense of Christmas magic that you can carry on with you for the rest of the year, uh, like that overly simplistic Muppet Christmas carol song of wherever you find love, it feels like Christmas or something. What I am going to try to do is to try to restore a sense of longing, a sense of hope, a confident expectation for the future. And as we build and hope for Christmas, Jesus' first advent, his first coming, just like Matt said, is it is our expectation that God will create in us a greater hope for his second advent, the second coming of Christ. So this year we're going to think through three select chapters in the book of Isaiah, considering Christ the King, considering uh, his multiple comings. Today in Isaiah 51, thinking through in forward expectation, forward hope, the king who would come, placing ourselves back in Israel's story of looking towards his first advent. The next week, in Isaiah 53, thinking through the king who is come, the king, what he came to do in his incarnation. And then two weeks from now, in Isaiah 61, the king who will come again. So before we jump right into chapter 51, a tiny bit of Isaiah context for us, so we don't just parachute in uh, without having the slightest inkling about where we're walking around. So at the time of Isaiah... We are about 200 years after the reign of King Solomon, the high watermark for the nation of Israel. But after Solomon died, two of his sons split his kingdom, split the nation of Israel into two different nations and two different kingdoms. There are the 10 northern tribes that you'll often read of as Ephraim or just Israel. Whenever you read after the division of the kingdom, uh, whenever you read Israel, think the 10 northern tribes. And then the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah. So whenever you see the south, including the, the, the city of Jerusalem, 
It's often just referred to as Judah. So Isaiah is in the south. He is in Jerusalem. He is in Judah. And over the course of the book, he speaks to several generations of Israel's kings or of Judah's kings. The events nearer to the beginning of the book, even where Kyle read from us for our call to worship this evening, at the beginning of the book, is all surrounding the political crisis of the day, and that is that the Assyrian Empire is looming over the horizon. Again, we've thought about the Assyrians before, but it is almost like the darkness of Mordor, building over the horizon, building towards Israel and Judah, the, a political and military machine unlike anything the world had seen up until that point. So Israel, in the north, they join, they join forces with another small nation called Syria to prepare for what is coming with Assyria, a different country. And Israel and Syria then began demanding that Judah join their alliance. And if not, then Israel and Syria is going to invade Judah before the Assyrians do. So the prophet Isaiah comes to King Ahaz of Judah in chapters 7, 8, and 9, and in the chapters following, saying, Ahaz, king of Judah, don't do that. Don't, don't join this alliance with the Syrians and with Israel. As, uh, don't become Ill allies with those wicked kings and wicked nations. As the old illustration goes, it doesn't do any good for the mouse to make an alliance with a couple of untrust, untrustworthy and slimy rats when there is a cat coming. You're all going to get eaten. Your alliance will last like a couple of minutes, and then it is curtains for you all. You need someone to stop the cat, and the rats ain't going to do it. So in later chapters, and with a later king, the king Hezekiah, Assyria finally shows up and attacks Jerusalem. And what happens? God miraculously delivers the people of Jerusalem and of Judea. 185,000 Assyrians die overnight. You can read about this in chapters 36 and 37. Rats don't stop the cat. They need a good lion to come in and protect the mice with one swat of his paw. So things are looking great now. The Assyrians are compromised. They are no longer a threat. Things are looking great for Judah. There's peace in the land. God is once again dwelling with his people. But by chapter 39, just one or two chapters later, things aren't looking great again. Isaiah tells Hezekiah that by the very next generation, because of sin, because of pride, because of false worship, um, it's now certain curtains for Judah. It's coming. Isaiah tells of the very near future. Because of all this sin, disobedience, and pride, everything that Hezekiah owns and most of the people, including his sons, are going to be taken away by an empire even bigger, even badder than the Assyrians. Something unimaginable, like 20 years ago the Babylonians. God's people are going to be taken out of the land, out to the east, swallowed up into a kingdom and society of the world, just as Adam and Eve were sent out to the east and swallowed up into the kingdoms and societies of the world, a kingdom of wickedness, of injustice, of opposition. Things are about to get real bad, real quick for the nation of Judah. But then, after that, in chapter 39, Things are about to get real bad. Isaiah, being the time-traveling, time-lord that he is, flies right into Isaiah chapter 40 when he says, comfort. There is a time coming. The rest of the book is forward-looking. Though the Babylonian attack and exile is certain, it is coming. It is about to get real bad, real fast. There will be comfort. 
And so, now finally, where we're going to pick it up in chapter 51, Isaiah is making no bones about it. The world is bad out there, but their existence, Judah's existence, is actually not hopeless. It's a terribly sad world, but the king is coming to make all of the sad things untrue. So let's consider now, finally, the promises of Isaiah 51 in two halves. Two halves, that of a hopeless world and yet a king of hope. So, a hopeless world. God comes to Judah and says to them in verse 1, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Now, just stop right there. This reveals to us a very sad reality about who we are as humans, even as God's people, that he will clearly speak to us about himself. He will speak clearly about the world, about his expectations for us, about his plan of salvation, about his very real love for us, and then we will not listen. We have to be told to listen. Here's the thing, though. We aren't just left to guess or imagine what God is like. When we do that, we usually are just looking down the well, understanding God to be some dim reflection of ourselves, rather than the God who has revealed himself to us. And so God has to come to us to say, listen. He will again say in verse 4, give attention to me. Pay attention, my people. Or again in verse 7, listen to me. And again, wake up in verse 9. Why do we need to be told this? Well, for one, we're we're hard-hearted. We are self-reliant. We are hard of hearing people. We like to be masters of our own fate. Especially as Americans, it's bred in our, into our very DNA as who we are, that we ought to be suspicious of and resistant to authority outside of ourselves, which can sometimes be a good response and can often be a very bad response. But we also need to be told to listen and to pay attention because of the reality of the world around us. The way that God describes Judah's circumstances, the circumstances that some of us might identify with, to one degree or the other. Listen to this. In verse 3, he calls the circumstances of Judah uh, waste places, wilderness, and desert. Verse 6, the place where they live is a place of decay and death. Verse 7, a place of derision, reproach, and reviling. Verse 13, a place of fear and depression. Verses 21 and 23, a place of affliction and torment by ruling kings and powers. So we, like Judah need to listen to pay, and to pay attention to who God is and what he is saying because sometimes circumstances around us might tend to suggest to us that maybe he's not there. Maybe he hasn't spoken. Maybe he isn't a good God. Because what we believe about God should actually be very comforting to us daily. We believe about God. We Christians believe that he has created all things for his glory that he is sovereign over all things, that he loves and preserves his children, but then tomorrow comes. We go through the difficulties and problems of our days. We doom scroll through our social media feeds and the news. And we're very tempted to respond with a very cynical, really God? For being so sovereign and wise and powerful, I'm pretty sure I would do things differently. In real difficulty, we sometimes wonder, for a God that pledges faithfulness to his people, there seem to be a lot of us right now, and certainly throughout history, who are suffering a whole lot. Like, what in the world? 
even perhaps moving towards a place of healthy questioning that expects a faithful response from God, where we then move pridefully into accusation. Like, are you sure you're not the one that needs to wake up, God? Are you sure that you're not the one who's asleep at the wheel? This world is absolutely a place of darkness and of evil and of sadness and of pain and of death. Now, in many ways, actually countless ways, uh, the world actually is better now than it has been in the past, certainly in the day, uh, certainly than in the day of Isaiah. Like, modern medicine is amazing. Amazing. Infant mortality rates are just like a minuscule fraction of what they've been throughout history. We now no longer live in a time where an infection, perhaps from a paper cut or a blister or a toothache, will likely kill you. Lost in the COVID news of the last year, uh, there's a malaria vaccine that's getting rolled out. That's amazing, which will someday possibly end the reign of the mosquito as the deadliest creature on earth. That's amazing. In the past 50 years, the amount of people globally who have been brought out of poverty and of starvation is staggering. Wars, genocide, murder, violence, these are absolutely still a thing. They will always be, but I assure you, uh, you would not want to live in a time where you could, at, uh, like tomorrow, get invaded by the Assyrians. That was, that's not an existence you would want to live. Even in recent history, I think I've shared with you before a conversation that a friend and I were having that someday in the new heavens and the new earth, when saints from of old will ask, hey, where were you from? When are you from? And we say, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I lived in America around the turn of the 20th century. And they'll be like, oh, oh, you mean the safest and wealthiest and most politically stable time in human history? And yes, yes, that's when I lived. Yes, that's right. Yet despite all of that, things really are bad out there. There actually is real darkness and evil and sadness and loss and sin and death there are those of us who actually are food and shelter insecure, certainly in our city. We still do get sick. We do experience loss. And of course, all of us, no matter the century, every human being will die. We still die just as much as a thousand years ago. Like, we're betting a thousand on that, every single one of us. We might live longer, but we will all Die. Our experience can't be relative to the 16th century or Israel's history under Babylon because we'd actually never lived in that experience, right? Of course, historical awareness is important, but we only live what we actually experience. So it's maybe good for us to reflect on the way things, how bad things used to be, but we live today. And these are our experiences for today. But here's the thing. Actually, good external security will not provide internal security. It just won't. We might tell ourselves that we might be uh, people of greater faith if this or that in the world would change. I would trust God more if. I would be happier if I had more physical intimacy with someone, physical intimacy at all with someone, more regularly. I would be more joyful if we could just somehow get the right people elected or the wrong people out. I would be more content if I could just get a better paycheck or a job that I enjoyed more. This, 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 or that. 
But despite being the most wealthiest, the healthiest, the most politically stable, the most sexually expressive people in all of human history, we are more anxious and we are more discontent than ever. And that's not to say that none of those things are bad. We should, that we should care about marriage or politics or jobs or job promotions. We don't just kick up our feet and say, well, the world's terrible out there. There's nothing we can do about it. But this is to say that this is our reality. There are difficult things out there. Difficulty exists. Loss exists. Sin exists. It always has. And it does right now. We live in creation that is subjected to futility, Romans 8. And especially when there is no king in the land and the people do what is right in their own eyes, which often includes us. When the king is on the throne, but we still do what is right in our, our, uh, in our own eyes because we are hard of hearing people who put our hopes in all of the wrong places. Because of all that, then we can make it worse. And so God does, as C.S. Lewis says, sometimes use suffering as his megaphone to a deaf world. Difficult things to open our ears, to get us to awake. And so... God comes to his people who are suffering under Babylon and he tells them, despite all this, a place of wilderness and waste, a place of suffering and oppression and of loss and of death, listen, there's a time of comfort coming. The king will come. The world is hopeless, but there is a king of hope. Justice and righteousness will go out from him. And so now secondly, a king of hope. Listen to me, God tells Judah, there is comfort coming, a time where God will make all of those waste and wilderness places once again like Eden, a, a desert into a garden, a place of joy and of gladness and of singing and of thanksgiving. But here's the thing, Judah, and here's the thing, Christchurch, you may not like the timing. He tells Judah to remember Abraham and Sarah, your father, your mother, all of you Jews out there, you came from Abraham, you were, you've come from him. I'm sure, though, remember them, I'm sure, though, that they, Abraham and Sarah, once they followed God in faith to Canaan, they just assumed that once they arrived, he'd give them a family right away. He'd give them an heir. Maybe they thought and assumed, obey God in this, and the results will happen. He'll bless you. But that's not what happened. In fact, God was more concerned about shaping a man and his wife, who would, more concerned with shaping a people who would not obey merely out of expectation for the presence at the end of the year. But out of love and of trust for him, the gift giver, not just his gifts, God has always been about inviting, about shaping and forming children who will resemble the Father. He will bear the family likeness rather than just existing to just squeeze the inheritance out of him. The hopelessness of the world, the pain, the struggle, and the loss of the world is real, but pain and struggle and loss are actually temporary. He's saying, remember Abraham and Sarah, they had to wait, but keep your faith in me. Keep your hope in me because all of this is temporary. Just as God told Abraham to go out and look at the stars in the sky in verse 6, God tells the people to go out and look around as well. Look up at the night sky and look at the world around you. 
But the reason for this is a bit different than the reason he gave to Abraham. He told Abraham to count the stars and all of they'll be, his descendants will be just as many. You can't number those stars. And same as your descendants. Have faith. And in that moment, Abraham did have faith and believed. But he tells Judah to go out and do the same for a different reason. He tells Judah to go out and look around outside and just understand that all of this is temporary. Mountains and valleys can be destroyed in earthquakes. The trees and the rivers, they dry up and die. Even the, even the sun won't last forever. It has an expiration date. And, Isaiah tells them, that even you are very temporary. But God, the end of verse 6, all of this is temporary, but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. This isn't necessarily a verse that we should like, build our end times theology on. Like, wait, when, when is the heavens going to uh, be evaporated pretty much and the, and the earth is going to wear out like a garment? When and how is all that going to happen? That's not what's going on. Just that created things, all of them, just look around, all created things have an end date. But keep going in verse 7, just 7 and 8, just as the stars and the rivers have an end. Here's the point of all of this, that the derision that you feel and you, you experience at the hands of those who hate God, all of that is temporary as well. That's the point. The loss, the loneliness, the suffering, the uncertainty, while it may not stop in your lifetime, it will stop. It has an expiration date. If the mountains and the sun are but temporary, then your neighbor's derision or a politician's reviling or your discontentment, certainly for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or Nigeria or China today, even political, religious persecution and repression, all of that is temporary. You may not like God's timing. You may not understand God's wisdom. You may not see God's power, but righteousness and judgment are coming. And comfort is here now for God's people as they wait for it. God will once again act on behalf of his people. Verse 9 is pretty weird. It's talking about cutting Rahab. But just as he uh, destroyed his enemies in the past. Rahab is the name of a Canaanite sea dragon, not the name of the woman in Jericho, just in case you're trying to put that together. Uh, Rahab is this sea dragon, so that's what Isaiah is talking about. God cut Rahab to pieces. He pierced the dragon. Verse 10, he dried up the sea that Israel might be redeemed and rescued from Egypt. In Isaiah's day, Isaiah is speaking this, in his day he's looking to the very far away past, the time when God redeemed and rescued his people from Egypt. And so looking to the very faraway past in Isaiah's day, he's looking to a future hope, a hope in which one commentator says will be a final homecoming of those ransomed in an unforeseeable exodus-like breakout, even better. That is what Isaiah is looking forward to, a time of rescue, a time of comfort, a time of justice and righteousness that is coming, just like Exodus, but better. And so because God has acted, we can know that he will act again. He has rescued his people, and he will rescue them again. God's action and trustworthy from the past grounds our hope in, his, in the present, in his action in the future. And so as Judah sits in captivity under the Babylonians, wasting away, 
verses 17 and following, describing just sitting in like a drunken stupor. The end of the chapter is weird. Judah's just described as being drunk. God has in judgment and in wrath brought about the Babylonians to discipline his people. This is super bad news, but within the bad news, there is good news. The good news is in verse 21 to the end of the chapter, just as God has brought the cup of judgment on Israel, he can take it away, and he will, which we will think through at length next week in chapter 53. But knowing the end of the story makes all the difference. Knowing the end makes all the difference in the present. If you could time travel to American soldiers who were freezing in foxholes at the Battle of the Bulge and tell them that all of this suffering right now is going to lead to victory, then all of that becomes worth it. If victory is coming and God is actually using difficulty to shape us and to fix our hope, then all of this is worth it, even if it's so terrible. A frozen foxhole in the Battle of the Bulge is terrible. It is still filled with suffering and death, but it is leading somewhere. If I'm just not sure where all this is going, then today in the foxhole is terrible. But if I know the fixed outcome of the future, then all of this today now has meaning. Our anchor then gets thrown far into the future, not the present. This is what we must do. We must fix our hope in Christ and throw our anchor into the future, into the Holy of Holies itself, where he is king, both now and forevermore, not anchoring ourselves to today, not anchoring ourselves to Christmas Day, presents and some, I don't know, something that might happen tomorrow that might make things a little bit better, a little bit happier tomorrow, but we'll just end in another day but anchoring ourselves into a sure and certain future. And so because of past and present and certain, a certain future, verse 17, God tells Judah to wake up, wake up, stay awake, wait on the Lord. The king is coming. And so we sing an expectant hope with an anchor tossed into the future. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. This is a common New Testament theme that places God's new covenant people of being exiled away from his presence, just like Israel and Judah were away from his presence, but then being brought out into an exodus-like existence of knowing God. O come, thou dayspring from on high, and cause thy light on us to rise. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. Rejoice, even amidst the darkness, Christ Church. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Wake up, stay awake, O people of the king. He is coming. Now we'll think more about the king's first first coming and his future second coming in the next two weeks. That in his first coming, he has indeed come to bring a exodus-like breakout, but better but that it won't be until his second coming that he will finally and fully make all of the sad things untrue. And in that sense, we are in a better place than Israel. The landscape has fundamentally changed as his people, but there are other ways in which we can definitely put ourselves in their shoes in cultivating hope 
in waiting on the Lord in confident expectation. So all I can think of when I, when I read Isaiah 51, 17, it says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. When I read that, all I can think of is Jesus' parable of the wise and foolish young women. Jesus says this in Matthew 25. He tells this story. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, ten young women, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their, bride, took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. What makes the foolish girls foolish in that parable? Is it because they don't have good memories, they don't understand or can remember what they're supposed to do? Is it just because they're sleepy? Is it because they're not expectant? I think what's going on here is they're just not prepared. Like when you get that sinking and panicked feeling when you're caught unprepared. You didn't see that thing coming. These girls are unprepared for the bridegroom's coming, and they are left outside. Just like the wise girls, the foolish girls were equally excited about the coming bridegroom and the marriage feast, but they had not made any preparations. These girls are treating the bridegroom as an add-on. They were here for the party, but the banquet was really just about them. The The bridegroom actually doesn't matter that much. And just like the foolish girls couldn't borrow oil from others, spiritual preparedness cannot be borrowed, cannot be transferred. Just because your parents are Christians, just because you have grown up or been around the church for many years or many decades, just because you like the Christmas season and sing the songs, we are all called to be individually and personally prepared. And so what makes the wise girls so wise? Was it because they were morally superior? Was it because they were better rule followers? No, they were just prepared. That's it. They expected the bridegroom and they were prepared. Most likely the 10 girls, all 10 girls, they they knew the cultural drill that the wedding party could be delayed. But the foolish girls, in their excited haste, they made no plans for the long haul. If you don't have a long-haul view and perspective of the coming of the bridegroom, you'll likely run out of oil. You'll be left outside, discouraged by short-term losses, short-term delays. And so, Christchurch, stay awake. Make preparations for the long haul. His coming is actually what this whole thing is about. This whole thing isn't just a party for us to have fun. This whole thing is actually about the coming of the bridegroom, the coming of the king. So let's wake up for his first coming. While presents and Christmas lights and Elf and Kevin McAllister, all of these things are all sure fun. Use these next couple of weeks. Let's use them well. 
Use these next couple of weeks to preach to yourself, to use these next couple of weeks to toss your anchor well into the future, well beyond December 25th, to the coming of the King. Jesus will come. Jesus has come. Jesus will come again. So the question for us is, are you ready? Have you made preparations for the long haul? Do you expect and hope for his coming? Are you indifferent to it? Isaiah 51 comes to us to tell us to stay awake and to be ready for a coming comfort because it is in and through his coming that God might say to us finally and fully in verses 15 and 16 that I am the Lord your God and you are my people. Amidst all of this suffering, I am your God and you are my people. So I'm going to leave you with what Ray Ortland says about these verses and I love this. Let this sink in. He says that God forms an unbreakable bond with his people and he gives them firm promises. And the conversation goes something like this that we might see in Isaiah 51, where God says, I am your God, you are my people, I will bless you. And we sinners say, but at our best, we barely believe you. God says, true, but I'll bless you. Then we say, but we don't deserve you. And he says, more than you know, but I will bless you. And we sinners say, but we don't live up to this. We're cowards. He says, you are, but I will bless you. And we sinners say, but we're so entrenched in this world, we'll never change. And he says, not true. You are Zion, the eternal city of God. I will dwell with you. I will bless you accordingly, and everything will change. When God is with us, When Jesus is Emmanuel, then everything will change. Might he transform us in his first coming, in his death on our behalf, and into, as we wait for his second coming, might everything change because of this. Might we look forward to him in confident expectation and hope. Let's pray that he might build in us this hope now. Our Father, we are thankful that you have, in your love, sent your son to us. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you have in your humility come to us to live in and with and amongst us. Holy Spirit, we are thankful that you have come to draw our hearts to Christ, that you might transform us, that you might dwell within us. Lord, we pray. We pray that you would forgive us of our hopelessness, of our lack of hope, of our putting our hope and fixing our hope in today in external circumstances that come and go and that are all temporary. Help us to throw our anchor far into the future into a sure and steady foundation, a sure and steady hope, Christ the King. So, Lord, we pray as we await Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, that you might be building in us a confident hope and expectation in, Lord Jesus, your second coming. And so we pray even now that even now, Lord Jesus, you might come quickly. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.